1 Timothy 3. And we'll read once again verses 1 through 7. First Timothy 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Well, we started our series in 1 Timothy 3 on the church's shepherds the first Sunday in June, and we have made that our focus this summer. We've really made it more of a topical study, but now we get to work our way through 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7. But I would like to remind you of kind of where we've been that got us to this point. We introduced the topic and we explained the noble task of shepherding the church. Then we explained some of the basics about shepherding, that shepherds are qualified men, males. We gave five unimpeachable lines of evidence from, to prove this from Scripture. We saw that shepherds are called elders, overseers, and pastors or shepherds, which is the same word in the New Testament. We saw that shepherds are organized as a group, as a plurality, and we saw that shepherds are to feed and lead the people of God. And then we began taking a tour through some key shepherding passages in the Bible. We looked at 1 Thessalonians 2 to see the heart of the shepherd. We looked for two messages at Hebrews chapter 13 to show how a man prepares to be a shepherd. We looked at Acts chapter 20 to see strong warnings to the shepherds. We looked at Ezekiel 34 to be reminded that shepherds don't own the church, that Christ does. Then we spent three messages looking at the similarities and the differences between the volunteer and the vocational shepherds in the church. And then we explained from 1 Thessalonians 5, the members' duties to the shepherds, that is to know the shepherds, to love the shepherds, and to help the shepherds. And finally, last time we examined from 1 Thessalonians 5 again, the shepherds' duties to the members, to exert effort consistently, to exercise authority protectively, to examine his life regularly, and to exhort the church scripturally. And through all of this, I've been telling you as we go, that by the time we finally get to the qualifications of a shepherd, an elder, here in 1 Timothy 3, this won't be earth-shattering or surprising information at all. In fact, I think this is going to seem intuitive to you now that we've gone through these other messages. I think it's important, though, for us to go back to the very beginning And I'd like to remind us why this is important to the whole church, why we don't just have a a select group of men to talk to this about, but we talk to the whole church. I want to review these reasons, and we started our whole series with these reasons, and I think it'll help us to understand that that this is for all of us. This is not just for shepherds or potential shepherds. I gave you 10, and I'll do them quickly. Reasons to preach this whole series to the whole church 1 Timothy is addressed to Timothy, but is for the entire church. It's for the entire church. 1 Timothy 6.21, 1 
He says, grace be with you. It's plural, with all of you in Texas, with y'all. It's with everybody. And so if the letter is meant for the church, and obviously it's included in the New Testament, then the whole church should benefit from a deeper understanding of all that Paul has for the church's shepherds. A second reason, church members who understand biblical leadership tend to be effective members. The church members who understand biblical leadership tend to be effective church members. When you have an appreciation for God's design for church leadership, then you tend to have a love for the church. Experience and observation really tells us over time that churches that take time to teach on leadership, to disciple leaders, tend to grow stronger and healthier over time. There's a third reason to provide accountability to current and future leaders in our own church. We want to be accountable. The church of Jesus Christ languishes when her leaders say, I'm done learning, I'm done changing, I'm done with my sanctification, I'm done maturing, I'm done growing. And so we're trying to set that as an expectation here that we're always seeking after Christ-likeness. This is exactly what Timothy was commissioned by Paul to do here in the church at Ephesus which is our concern, and that is to provide accountability to redirect the efforts of the eldership toward teaching the Bible and the biblical gospel, to give them a corrective. There's a fourth reason we preach this to everyone, to officially lay down a solid foundation in our own church. We, we need to make this foundation official. The history of this church has been that of a fairly good understanding of church leadership, but this isn't the same church it was even two years ago. And so this is our effort to put down some firm and very solid roots and a comprehensive understanding of church leadership. This is especially important in an independent church like ours where so many of you come from a lot of different church backgrounds. And so we want to all be on the same page now for many, many years to come. I mean, really, it's, it's reasonable to ask how can church members possibly hope to have a proper view of the church if they don't have a proper view of church leadership? And so the mission of the gospel and the progress of the church, it's been propelled forward by the power of God. How? Through the preaching given by the shepherds of Christ's church. This has always been the way and it always will be. There's a fifth reason to preach this to everyone and that is to give church members a look into the heart and ministry of shepherds. We don't want this vast chasm. We don't want this divide where, where leaders don't understand the people and people don't understand the leaders. One of the ways we said last a uh, couple of weeks ago that the church functions well is when the church members follow the command of 1 Thessalonians 5.12 to respect those who labor among you. We said literally it means to know the shepherds, to know them. And so the more you know the shepherds and what the shepherding ministry is all about, the more the church functions as a well-conjoined body together. Just as shepherds are called to know the sheep, so the sheep are called to know the shepherds. This is the sixth reason that we said, and that is to protect the church from less than effective shepherds. We have to protect the church. The fact that 1 Timothy is written primarily to get rid of lousy shepherds and to install qualified shepherds tells us how important this is. The shepherds who lack courage or who lack knowledge of the word, or who lack maturity in the word, or who lack discernment and judgment, or who lack an understanding of the core mission of the church, or perhaps at the very worst, who lack love for the sheep. We have to protect the church. 
certainly all of us as shepherds are in a continual learning process and we lean heavily on what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.15. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Getting the title of elder doesn't mean, oh, all my spiritual growth has stopped. I would say the opposite. It needs to accelerate to set an example. Your understanding of what a shepherd ought to be will help protect the church as a whole because you'll recognize a fraud when you see him. It's the seventh reason we want to preach this to everyone, and that is to protect the church from less than helpful sheep also. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. we've spoken of this verse often, speaks of obeying your leaders and, and letting them watch over your souls with joy and not with groaning. Well, a greater understanding of the ministry of shepherding helps act as a preventative to the sort of sorrow that's given to the leaders of the church by members who don't understand shepherding. I have said this over and over again, and it continues to be true from my own personal experience that one of the greatest motivators in pastoral ministry for me is the loving and eager and listening people here who love Christ, love his word, and demonstrate this in this beautiful partnership we have between the sheep and the shepherds, the shepherds and the sheep. I had an eighth reason to preach this to everyone. and It may not benefit us now, but it'll benefit the whole church of Jesus Christ in the future. And that is to inspire and identify future shepherds. At some point, a young man or even a boy needs to come across the thought, maybe God is calling me to be a shepherd. And to begin to process through that, there is most definitely a calling aspect to the shepherding of the church of Jesus Christ. And I have hoped to light a fire under a few young men that perhaps they would prepare to be a shepherd, even some of them to commit to the years and years and years of training and preparation that it takes to be a preaching and teaching shepherd in the church. And we said this before, we'll say it again, the church of Jesus Christ always needs more qualified shepherds. I have never seen an article that says, the church of Jesus Christ has too many qualified men. That's never been the case. The church suffers under both volunteer and vocational shepherds who either don't know what they're doing or worse, they don't care they know what they're doing. Or at the very worst, they don't know that they don't know. And the result is that the precious people of God suffer. It's so sad to me to see church members who know more about what the church is to be doing than their own pastors do. And that frustrates everyone. That brings us to you, a ninth reason to do this. It's the duty of the church members to recognize potential future shepherds. That's your duty. That's part of your goal. Over the course of your lifetime in the church, as you interact with boys and men who seem to naturally lead and naturally teach and guide, you have a responsibility to do two things, to pray for them as potential future shepherds and to inform current shepherds that that is a gifted man or boy. And you, in fact, could be a catalyst. It may be you going to a young man and saying, I have noticed these five things about your life. I want you to pray about being a shepherd in the church of Jesus Christ. That will be a conversation that 60 years from now, that young man will proclaim from the pulpit with tears in his eyes saying, I'm thankful for that church member who came to me when I was 14 and said, you need to pray about being a shepherd. And so you can have an impact. And the last reason we said you need to hear this is you need to know what to pray for. You need to know what to pray for. The job of shepherding God's people is, in my estimation, the greatest privilege on earth. 
It, it absolutely is. Paul calls the gospel ministry in 2 Corinthians 4 a mercy of God. But at the same time, the ministry is also fraught with spiritual perils and dangers and heartaches. It's a never-ending duty. You're never finished. You don't know when you've done enough. There's no way to know that. To be a shepherd is to willingly paint a target on yourself for Satan's minions to come after you, to even come after your family. Because when shepherds fail, then the church fails. And so Satan knows what he's doing. And so the shepherds of Christ's church, we need your prayers. And I hope that through this series, you've gotten a, a more robust understanding of how to pray for your leadership. So now we can get finally to the actual qualifications of a shepherd. And these are going to seem obvious. They're going to seem instinctive to you. There, there are going to be no surprises here. Rather just than listing the the qualifications, I decided to categorize them into seven different categories to kind of help us understand. We're going to cover three of those categories today. We'll do three the next time and then one for our final message in this series, which I believe brings us right up to the Steadfast Conference. So we'll time it out just right. So we'll do these seven categories, three today. First category of qualifications, we'll call this category a sacrificial desire. A sacrificial desire. Now, at the outset, we have to mention that shepherding involves sacrifice at various levels. It involves a love for the church that extends into giving things up for the church. Things like time, things like money, things like other opportunities. Great elders spend time. They expend effort. They learn. They grow. They give up other pursuits that perhaps could occupy too much time. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of expediency. Why is that? Well, because we live in a dying world. We live in a dying world in which at any moment, Christ could call the church home and grace on this earth begins ticking down to a day when grace ends. And so the elders of the church, they can't make this a hobby They can't make it something they squeeze in here and there. They can't make it something that's just a a little tack on at the end of their resume. But under this category of a sacrificial desire, we would place three of the qualifications that I would say are all starting points. The sacrificial desire. First, in verse 1, he desires a noble task. We said this in the very first message. Noble simply means something that's good. It's fine. It's worthy of praise that to spend a chunk of your life as a leader in the church of Jesus Christ is a fine and a good way to to spend the, the short number of days on earth that God has given. It's not only noble, but it's a noble task. It's a work. I've tried to emphasize this just about every message. There is work involved. Leadership in the church is not to be construed as sitting around in meetings, making decisions that everyone else carries out. That's a a political model. That's a corporate board of directors model. It's not a hands-on model. We pointed out last week, 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says that the work of leadership is, we we said the word is kapiao. It's a toiling labor. It's copious. You can hear that word in the Greek word. Eldership is not a hobby. It's not a matter of simply showing up to a meeting every once in a while and spouting off opinions by which the whole church has to abide. It's a task, and it's a noble task. And this is very important as a starting point 
Because this reminder acts as a corrective against thinking too much of oneself, of smiling a little too broadly at having the position of elder or shepherd. I've heard this so many times from fellow pastors that they ordained an elder who was so useful in the church and the minute he got the title, he quit doing anything. And he just wanted to make decisions for what everyone else was going to do. No, instead, there needs to be a sense of drivenness. There needs to be a fixation. There needs to be a preoccupation with shepherding the church of Jesus Christ. It's something that we think about all the time. Our world, you can just read the news to see this, our world is growing sicker and sicker every day. You can almost chart it by the day now. How much more do we need men of God? Shepherds cannot sit on their laurels and do a little. The shepherds should be setting the example in their toiling labor, yearning to serve the church with everything that they have. The second way we see a sacrificial desire The qualified shepherd, verse 6, is not a recent convert to Christ. He's not a recent convert. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Why is this qualification so important? Because conceit and arrogance become much more likely as a result. He must not be a recent convert. That's, a, that's one word in Greek. We get our word neophyte from it. It means newly planted. Some of these brand new. Instead, there to be those who have walked with Christ and proven themselves faithful and consistent. Now, just a little historical note to help us provide some context here. Remember that Paul is writing Timothy who is to provide correctives and directives to the church at Ephesus The church at Ephesus now had been in place for about a decade, 10 to 12 years. In contrast to that, in the qualifications of elders in Titus chapter 1, Paul doesn't put this qualification that they not be new believers in place to the believers on the island of Crete where Titus was ministering very simply because they were all neophytes. They were all new believers. But compare that here to 1 Timothy where there's an older, more mature church Paul's instruction here to Timothy shows the best case scenario that the greatest wisdom involved here is in not choosing the newer believers. Why is this? Well, Paul says, because the newer believer might be puffed up with conceit. Now, this is a word, it's one word in Greek that's used figuratively here. The the literal meaning is that you're filled up or wrapped up in smoke. What's the problem with being wrapped up in smoke? You can't see anything. You're blind. It's a blinding influence. Paul uses this word only three times. He uses it to speak of false teachers in the church in 1 Timothy 6.4. He's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He uses it to speak of all people who will characterize the last days on earth in 2 Timothy 3.4 that they are treacherous, reckless, and swollen with conceit. And he uses it here of the elder who is a newer believer and has let pride get a hold of him instead of the sense of sacrificial desire to serve the church. But it gets worse. Not only can he be puffed up with conceit, the smoke of his own arrogance getting into his eyes, he may fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, it can often be said, that falling into the condemnation of the devil means that the devil is condemning you for being prideful. 
That makes no sense whatsoever. Why would the devil condemn somebody for doing exactly what he did? No, this is not falling into the condemnation that the devil gives. This is falling into the condemnation incurred by the devil. The same condemnation that Satan received. What was his original sin? It was pride. It was arrogance. Here was Satan's sin. Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 13. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And it was Satan's sin which introduced sin into all of creation and into the heart of all mankind through Adam. Satan fell. He fell from favor with God. He fell from his previous perfect character falling into the condemnation that the devil has. The word fell is used in Matthew 12, 11 to speak of falling into a pit. It's used in Luke 10, 36 to speak of falling prey to robbers. It's used by Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 9 to speak of falling into temptation. But what really got my attention is that Paul uses that same word twice in a row, right here in verse 6 and verse 7. Verse 6 He puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Two times you fall, two times he mentions the devil. In two verses. That's a heavily weighted emphasis in such a short period of time. Does that tell elders, be careful, be careful, be careful? Absolutely. Dr. John Kitchen wrote poetically, quote, Taking the lead can plant a seed that when watered with self-conscious reflection gives rise to the noxious weeds of self-importance. The attitude of an elder in the church of Jesus Christ must be the same that John the Baptist had toward Jesus Christ when he said that he must become greater and I must become what? Less. Now, why would Paul include this here in his list of qualifications of elders? Because it was already happening. Some of the elders in the church of Ephesus were puffed up with conceit. They were filled with the smoke of their own arrogance. In other words, whether new converts or not, the false teachers in Ephesus had grown proud. Turn the page to 1 Timothy 6. Listen to Paul's description of these men. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. Here's his description of these men. Verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. How is it that an elder can be puffed up and act like a new believer? There's a few ways this can happen. This can happen when an elder asserts something to be true without a scriptural argument, without taking a well-studied position from the Bible. The assertion of an opinion or a position without adequate scriptural support is the quintessential definition of a false teacher. That's what a false teacher does. Better to say, Scripture says, than to say, I think. 
How else can an elder become puffed up and act like a new convert? By becoming more enamored with the position than the people. The people is what eldership is all about. The ones who love to hear the sound of their own voice and to see the effect of their own decisions rather than loving the maturing and growing Christ-likeness of people, rather than being broken for your sanctification, rather than being heartbroken to see you become more and more like Christ. An elder can become puffed up and act like a new convert by being obsessed with a pet topic or direction. Being obsessed with a pet topic or direction, believing the whole church would be better if only we did this one trendy new thing. If only we did this. Instead, we think of Paul who told the elders of Ephesus just a few years earlier in Acts 20 that he has taught them the whole counsel of God. What was his method? Preach the word. It's never changed. And an elder can become puffed up by placing himself above needing shepherding himself. Placing himself above needing shepherding himself. I, for whatever reason, have had the opportunity to speak to a lot of pastors who are in difficulty. I don't, I don't know if I'm a magnet for trouble or what I am, but I have that opportunity, and, and I've heard this so many times. This man that I ordained as an elder, all of a sudden now, it's like he doesn't want to grow, and now he's just pushy and difficult, and his own life is less than an example than it used to be. I said last week that your elders should be setting the example in attentiveness and in desire to grow into the preached word. You should be able to look to them for that. And so we need men who are not new converts. We need men who are growing in the Lord. It's been said that time doesn't equal maturity, but maturity always takes time. It always does. Why is time so important? A man has had years to see the faithfulness of the Lord in his own life and so he can impart comfort in the sovereign care of God to others. He's had time to get knocked down and be disciplined by the Lord enough to hopefully have learned his own vulnerabilities and to have a lower view of himself. He's had time to grow less fond of the things of this world and more fond of the things that are eternal. Time is very, very important. Back in First Timothy 3, the third way we see a sacrificial desire. First Timothy 3, first part of verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. He must be above reproach. What does it mean to be above reproach? I think the simplest way to explain this is that there should be no skeletons in the closet. No surprises. There's nothing that would shock or surprise you. One of my heroes of the faith, Dr. Steve Lawson, was one of my professors and lead professor in my doctoral program. And he claims to be a very, very boring person. And here's why. He says, I can talk to you about God in the Bible. I can talk to you about golf. And I can talk to you about my favorite ink pens. And that's it. That's all he does. And those are really his three favorite topics of conversation. Once you get off those three, you kind of lose him. Can I put it this way? You should look to your elders to live essentially a pretty boring, mundane, routine life. This guy goes to work. He goes home. He ministers to his wife and to his children. He takes care of his household. He gets up. He does it again. He's also ministering in the church of Jesus Christ. And he's working hard for that. What else does he do? Really not much else. No skeletons in the closet. Now, this doesn't mean that the shepherd won't receive accusations. 
As a matter of fact, that's part of Satan's plan for the church, is to accuse shepherds. But he doesn't have a secret life. And what you see is what you get. That, that he doesn't fear that you're going to show up at his house and discover some horrible sinful thing. This isn't an insistence on perfection. It's not sinlessness, obviously. But it does speak of a life that could be emulated, that could be imitated. By the way, this is antithetical to the kind of good old boy system of choosing church leaders, of choosing men who have the strongest personalities, who, have the, who are the loudest or the most social or give the most financially. Instead, it's very simple. Can others imitate his life? This is part of the category of a sacrificial desire because a shepherd can't afford to play with sin. He can't afford to play with skating on the edge of still trying to maintain the aura of a shepherd, of living a double life and seeing if he can get away with it. He can't do it. Just a couple of years ago, absolutely heartbreaking, one of the guest lecturers in my doctoral program, he was also a frequent speaker at the Master's Seminary, just a couple of years ago, it was exposed that he had been seducing multiple women over a period of years, most notably women students in the Bible college and seminary in which he taught. He'd been partially separated for his wife for quite some time, and no one, including the elders of the church that he pastored, even knew it. This wasn't a case of a horrible one-time sin or a deeply regretted singular action, It was a calculated, long-time series of romantic affairs using his position of authority to gain emotional and psychological control over his victims who were all significantly younger than him and at least one of them married. Absolutely devastating. That sort of leader is absolute poison. It's kryptonite to the church. And so Paul gives the admonition that the shepherd is above reproach. Not perfect, but no skeletons in the closet. No major shocks. Well, there's a second category of qualifications, and we'll call this category a God-honoring home. A God-honoring home. And again, no surprises here. This is intuitive to you. Right after the qualification of above reproach in verse 2, we see that the shepherd must be the husband of one wife. More precisely, in Greek, a one-woman man. Now, just to clear this up, this is not a requirement for marriage as this would have disqualified the Apostle Paul himself. And if we use that same logic, then when verse 4 says that he must keep his children, plural, submissive, then that means that he must have at least two children. So we can't use that logic. But it is a statement of loyalty and fidelity and honor in the marriage relationship. He's faithful to the wife that he has. He's not a man seeking other relationships. He's not a man of habitually wandering thoughts and and eyes. He should be someone who's capable of being tender and kind and loving and a servant to his wife. This is very logical, isn't it? Because if you can't do this with her, why would we expect him to be able to do it with the church? You should be able to go to any shepherd and ask, how can my marriage be more God-honoring And have him be able to speak not only from Scripture, but to point to the example of his own marriage. Not as an example of perfection, but as an example of loving, kindness, of of affection, of loyalty, of humility. Included in the home, of course, are the children. Verse 4, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. 
He must manage, literally in Greek, stand over his house. He must be the guy in charge. He must be the clear leader in his home shouldn't be characterized by by chaos, by wildness, or the sense that things are out of control. This verse makes young pastors with with little babies very nervous. Like, my house is chaotic all the time. But you're in charge of the chaos. That's what you're looking for, right? It's not a 13, 16, and 17-year-old that are running the show. He's to keep his children submissive. They're not wild. They're not uncontrollable. In other words, he's actively training his children to obey their father. What is a shepherd supposed to do? Actively training the children of God to obey their father. It's the same thing. Now, we have to take a moment here to define children. This cannot mean all offspring of every age. A man with a 45-year-old son can't be expected to keep him submissive. The adult son's no longer under his authority. He's responsible to God directly. He's not responsible to his dad any longer. And also, the context is the home, living under the roof of the shepherd. This isn't a demand for perfect children. It's a demand for a home that isn't chaotic, that's characterized by children who obey their father, which means that he has the courage and the biblical conviction to discipline his children not so they won't embarrass him, but so that they, they'll be raised in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Now, we need to kind of dig into this one because there's a, a pretty good interpretive issue here. We're helped by the obvious cross-reference that Paul gives to Titus concerning the qualifications of an elder. Turn a few pages over to Titus chapter 1, just a few pages to your right, because we're given some commentary that assists our understanding of 1 Timothy 3.4. And that is in Titus chapter 1, verse 6. <clears throat> Paul has just told Titus to appoint elders in every town. And he gives us the first qualification. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, there's the first one. We just talked about that. The husband of one wife, so far so good. And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Let's start with the easy part. Children not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Debauchery, excesses, overindulgences. Only Peter uses this word again in 1 Peter 4. 4, It's in the context of overindulgence in alcohol and in sexual sin. What Paul is talking about here is this is the child whose life is marked by wanton indulgence of getting anything and everything he or she wants. What is the implication? Dad can't discipline. The implication is dad can't draw a line in the sand. Dad can't make rules stick. Debauchery. And then there's insubordination. The children are being given limits, and yet they're not expected to abide by them. They're unwilling to live by the rules of the household. Now for the harder part. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul simply says children must be submissive. We understand that. But Paul says here in Titus 1 that the elder must have children who are believers. What do we mean by this? What did Paul mean? Well, I think it's important to note, first of all, that the translation of the word believers is fairly arbitrary. It's an arbitrary decision on the part of the translators. It can equally be translated children who are faithful. Now, we would take the position that children who are faithful makes more sense and is more supportable 
than children who are believers. In fact, we just heard from Pastor Tom in in rugby that they're praying for the salvation of their last child. If you take the position, children who are believers, then we would say that disqualifies him from gospel ministry. Well, let's work through this for a minute. There's some very good reasons to take the position, children who are faithful. And I'll give you reason zero, first of all. Reason zero is very practical, that every time a pastor's wife has a baby, he's unqualified for ministry. Every time. But we won't count that one. That's a little bit pragmatic. Let me give you some theological reasons. The context is speaking of behavior, not salvation status. That's the context. The very next phrase indicates observable behaviors, debauchery, insubordination. Second reason we would say children who are faithful. The comparison to our 1 Timothy 3, 4 passage indicates behavior. Again, not salvation. Children who are submissive. That's not a salvation issue. Children are to be submissive in the household. Better translation, in your house, in the home. It's not a requirement for perfectly behaved children but it emphasizes the proactive fathering of the leader of the home. In other words, no passive dads. By the way, there's this myth that somehow pastor's kids, sometimes called PKs, have such a rough time and they they turn out really badly. And the myth is that's because people in the church put too high expectations on them. That's not why pastor's kids turn out badly. Pastor's kids turn out badly because dad lives a different life in the church than he does at home. And they can't stand the divergence. I'm thankful to have raised my kids in a pastor's home. It's a glorious thing to do. No passive dads. Here's a third reason we take this as children who are faithful. All the qualifications of an elder refer to controllable areas of personal responsibility. Things you can do something about. Things you can grow in. They're all qualities the leader or potential leader can intentionally develop. But to say that he has the same control over the salvation of his children is out of character with the other qualifications. If, if he had to have children who are believers, even if there is grace in the church and the, and the church said, well, obviously we're not expecting the newborn to be saved, but by the time they're four or five, they need to be saved. What, what's going to be happening at home? Look, Johnny, you got to get on your knees right now. I got a mortgage here because there's payments to be made. And now you have a wrong motive. Here's a fourth reason. The doctrine of election. The doctrine of election demands that God alone is responsible for salvation. The doctrine of election says that salvation is a monogistic work of God. This is expressed in both Old and New Testaments, specifically in the New Testament with the familiar word eklektos, from which we get the elect of God. Ephesians 1.4 says God chose the elect before the foundation of the world. John 5.21 says that Christ gives life to whom he will. I don't have time to go into the dozens of very clear passages that prove this doctrine. But just suffice to say this, that believers are charged with proclaiming the gospel, but never in the Bible is a Christian given the responsibility of giving or imparting new life. You can't do it. To make a potential elder responsible for the election of his child is actually stealing the exclusive right of God to do that. We would also say that the doctrine of divine calling is a reason this is children who are faithful. The doctrine of divine calling demands that God alone is responsible for salvation. Acts 16.14, in the account of Lydia, 
getting saved, she clearly heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul and, quote, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. Romans 8.28 defines a believer in Christ as one who has been called according to God's purposes. Jesus pictured himself as a shepherd. He says that he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them all out, when he has brought out all his own, rather, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. You see, if an elder is responsible to make sure his children are saved, now he's the responsible, he's responsible for the divine call. The elder is responsible only to work at keeping his children well-behaved and to present the gospel to them. The divine call belongs to God and God alone. One more reason, the doctrine of regeneration. The doctrine of regeneration demands that God alone is responsible for salvation. Colossians 2.13, this glorious verse, tells us who is responsible for the new birth. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That's God's work. Jesus himself said in John 3, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again, passive Greek verb, meaning the person being born again didn't do the work. I I feel bad for the tens of thousands of altar calls over the history of the church where the preacher has said, come forward to be born again. If you came forward, you're already born again. It's too late. God already saved you. You can't do it again. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new what? Creation. How many creators are there? Only one. Regeneration says that independently of any human cause whatsoever god recreates he imparts new life he circumcises the heart and he washes away sin no human being including a loving father including even an elder in the church can bring about the work of regeneration as jesus said this is the work of the spirit and the spirit is like the wind which blows in the way that man cannot control or influence A few years ago, I preached a series called God Honoring Parenting. And the basic premise of what Scripture says about parenting is that ultimately you're not responsible for final results. You are responsible to honor the Lord in your parenting, to run your home with organization and submission and love and nurture, to do so in a way that pleases God. And God is in charge of the results. That's the qualification of an elder. Why is that? Very simply, Because all true spiritual leadership begins in the home. It begins at home. Go back with me to 1 Timothy 3. We'll do one more category today and then do three more the next time. One more category today, a long-range perspective. A long-range perspective. This is our third category. Now, I'm going to explain this label in a moment. First, I want to walk through the easy-to-understand qualifications I'm putting under this label of a long-range perspective, but we'll get back to that. Verse 3, in the middle of verse 3, he is not violent but gentle. Not violent but gentle. Now, this may seem obvious to us, a shepherd who isn't violent, who doesn't solve things with his fists. We don't want that. You know, see somebody praying with a church member who's in rebellion, and then then he's beating the tar out of them after that. You know, I guess that's one way to bring about repentance, but it doesn't work that well. 
the base mean of this, this word, not violent, but gentle, it means to strike someone. That's the basic meaning. But the connotation here is somebody who's a bully. Someone who intimidates others, either by emotional or psychological pressure, who makes certain to let people know that he had better get his way. Older translations use the word pugnacious, which means a boxer. We get the word pugilist. Somebody who is a fighter, one who uses intimidation and insistence in any form of threat to manipulate others. This has no place in the church. Instead, he's to be gentle, he's kind, he's tolerant. Not of sin, but of not always have things go his own way. There's a humble steadfastness to him. There's a patience. There's even an ability to withstand injustice and difficulties and disgrace and even mistreatment without ever developing hatred, without developing malice, without developing a heart of of treacherous revenge. He's not quarrelsome. Right after not violent but gentle, he's not quarrelsome. Sometimes translated that he is peaceable. He doesn't come across as a fighter, as one who needs to win over another to assert dominance and control. Somebody who can't listen but always has to be the one in control. The quarrelsome man doesn't know when to stop. He doesn't know when to stop poking and prodding not to lead someone to righteous behavior, but to prove himself right. This doesn't mean that the shepherd can't confront sinful behavior, but it means that the the means to do so is not threats, not anger, not um, some sort of controlling vitriol. There's a gentleness. One writer said, a leader cannot command the respect of others if he cannot command himself. I think that makes sense. Now, why would we categorize these qualities of not violent but gentle and not quarrelsome as being under the label of a long-range perspective? Listen carefully. The problems of being pugnacious, of being quarrelsome, stem from wanting everything perfect when? Now. Of having an inability to wait And yes, absolutely, there are crisis moments in the church where leadership must be exerted, where a decision must be made. We understand that. And in fact, like a father in a home, there are times when conflict needs to be initiated because it's over obedience to the Lord in the church. There are times when taking a stand is necessary. Titus 2.15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. But that's not the usual. The most important strategy is faithfulness over time. The bearing of spiritual fruit through continued ministry faithfulness. Shepherds should not think in terms of months. They should think in terms of years and maybe even decades. John MacArthur was asked once how he deals with opposition in the church. And he said, well, one way is just to outlast them. To be faithful over time until God takes care of the problem. So, three categories. A sacrificial desire, a God-honoring home, a long-range perspective. Listen, the church of Jesus Christ is not a game we play. 
It is not a human organization to be controlled. It is not a personal platform for a self-serving agenda. It is not a place to feel powerful or controlling over people. It's not a place to get your ego stroked. It's not a hobby to mess with. The church is the bride of Christ who is to be salt and light to a quickly dying world and who has been bought and paid for by the blood of the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. And he expects his lowly, his lowly, his lowly under shepherds to take the church ultra seriously, to go above and beyond to serve to the fullest capacity possible, to be spent, to be expended for the efforts of the gospel. The shepherds are the be like Paul when speaking of the gospel ministry when he said in Colossians 1.29, for this I toil. Why is shepherding so key? Well, very simply, for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel, Romans 3.10 says, It is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Paul says in Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says in Romans 10.9 and 10, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And if you're saved, Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And verse 16 says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That is the message that the shepherds of the church must bear and share and wear it. They wear it in their own lives. They wear it as an example They wear it with the exertion and the joy and the toil and the delight with which they love the church of Jesus Christ to their dying day. We want shepherds that will serve until we wheel them out because they're babbling the alphabet backwards. (laughs) We want shepherds that will devote themselves to this. This is not a hobby. This is your life, your job. If you become a, a volunteer shepherd your job is just a way to make money that's it it's not the purpose of your life let's pray together for just a moment our father we thank you for this time we thank you for the clarity with which you have given us uh, the qualifications of shepherds and elders in the church lord we're we're so thankful for the shepherds we have we pray for more we pray that you would use the ones we have the ones that are coming down the the pipeline lord to advance the gospel. We pray, Lord, that that would be our mission as a church, to proclaim Christ and to shepherd the church toward maturity, toward Christ-likeness. And Lord, for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl hearing this message who does not know Christ, who has not bent the knee at the foot of the cross, might this be the day that you regenerate their hearts that they confess their sins, that they repent of having worshipped self, of having worshipped the world, of having worshipped everything except God through Christ. Might this be the day you change their hearts, that they come into the kingdom 
that they come under the, the shepherding of your under-shepherds, most importantly under the shepherding of the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.